When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories with the medical historian, Dr. Richard Sugg. Richard is the author of Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, the history of corpse medicine from the Middle Ages to the Falun Gong. His book investigates the history behind corpse medicine in its various forms. And I wanted to read you a short extract before you listen to the podcast. For well over 200 years in early modern Europe, the rich and the poor, the educated and the illiterate all participated in cannibalism on a more or less routine basis. Drugs were made from Egyptian mummies and from the dried bodies of those drowned in North African desert sandstorms. And later in the era, the corpses of hanged criminals offered a new and less exotic source of human flesh. Human blood was also swallowed, sometimes fresh and hot, seconds after a beheading and sometimes direct from a living donor's body, sometimes dried, powdered, or distilled. This podcast is... It takes a deep dive into the macabre and fascinating history of corpse medicine, and I certainly found Rich's research shocking, incredibly surprising, and also stomach-turning. I hope you enjoy it. Richard Sugg, welcome to Hidden Histories. Many thanks. Your new book investigates the history of corpse medicine which deals essentially in the consumption of the dead so cannibalism is a new term to me so how do you describe corpse medicine and and what are its various origins yeah um it's corpse medicine and occasionally you can use live bodies which we'll we'll perhaps touch on the earliest uh, we know of it is roman gladiatorial amphitheater the slain or dying gladiator lying in the sand and uh, a man leaning over his wounded body the man is not a surgeon or doctor he's in fact a patient drinking the gladiator's blood as a remedy for epilepsy and this flickered in and out of the shadows through the early centuries AD and then it comes back into light in another form and this is the medieval version of uh, the alchemy of blood if you like great age for alchemy and 
very saintly characters who, you know, as you know, probably felt that alchemy was a kind of holy pursuit of personal refinement. Uh, so people like Roger Bacon, Arnold of Villanova, uh, St. Albertus Magnus uh, were all distilling blood and swore in many cases that it was a kind of panacea, deathbed remedy, where they revive the dead or they at least revive the dead long enough for them to make their will and so forth. So we get this medieval phase. But in fact, I can't say this enough times, it's not really a medieval phenomenon. It's actually much more uh, of an early modern and, in fact, phenomenon of the scientific revolution. And it gets going from the 16th century with Egyptian mummies. Uh, They decide that they want the pitch uh, that's in Egyptian mummies for medicine. And presently they decide they want the mummies. They're being smuggled in great numbers uh, back from Cairo and powdered, given to you on a plaster on a wound, given to you uh, in a drink against wounds. And uh, it's the first and last remedy of all our physicians against wounds and hemorrhages, states Amboise Paré, the royal French surgeon. And uh, yeah, Paré gives uh, an alternative, he doesn't agree with mummy, to a man called Desersan after he falls from his horse. And Desersan wakes up presently and demands to know why he wasn't given mummy, because this is the top medicine. Francis I, a little earlier, carried it around with him in his purse everywhere uh, in case he had a fall from his horse. But as the 17th century goes on, Paracelsianism becomes more and more influential. And there's a big split, really, between the old guard Galenist physicians and the new Paracelsians. And the question is not, should you eat people for medicine? But what sort of person should you eat? And at this point, uh, the Paracelsians decide the ideal uh, medicine is this a young man, aged about 24, red-haired, dead of a violent death, preferably from strangling or drowning, not uh, stabbing. And this is all very precisely based, as we'll find in a little while, on pretty much the idea that you are swallowing the power of the soul, a soul from a healthy, prematurely slain body. But beyond this, you've got pretty much everything if you ask the right person, um, human brains, heart, um, you've got things you can do without, such as hair, sweat, nails, blood, and you've got fat being used for cosmetics. Skull is a big one, and whether it's the powdered skull, which goes into King Charles II's drops, or it's the moss of the skull, which you can see uh, on the front of the book, skulls were in big demand. So that's a brief, uh, disgusting summary. Okay, so it's sort of its origins were more in blood consumption, but then as it gained popularity, um, people began to consume all parts of of the human form. That's pretty much it, I suppose. Yes, um, from what we see in the early phases, it's blood, and then you you get onto mummy, which of course seems like not very visceral, dirty, chewy, wet kind of flesh, but then you do get. Uh, yeah, to the very fresh criminal corpses. Okay. And the, just to confirm, the Paracelsians, were they the um, the advocators of human consumption? They were the main ones for it, yeah. Although they were by no means all kind of marginal figures. You know, you'd have um, royal surgeons and all sorts. So instantly, I would assume that there must have been conflict between the Christian faith and, and the Western religious ideology and the idea of consuming the human body. Was there conflict here or did that actually overlap? Well, one of the greatest ironies I found in the book actually was, as you'll know, you know, they were at each other tooth and nail, the Protestants and the Catholics, uh, about 
whether how exactly they were drinking Christ's blood and how they were eating Christ's body and what this meant. Um, and in one of these debates, um, at which Ben Johnson was uh, was present actually, the Protestants got themselves in a bit of a sticky corner because the Catholics are saying, well, yeah, you drink people's blood and you eat their flesh uh, for medicine. And the Protestants really couldn't come up with an answer for this very easily. You've got, obviously, the overarching fact that until the Reformation, all Christians were, as far as they were concerned, drinking blood and eating flesh in the host every week. That must have had some influence. But actually, the truth of this is stranger and more surprising. It's that for much of our period, about 200 years at least, people believed uh, they were swallowing the power of the soul and it was a human body they wanted because the humans had the most powerful soul. Was there any evidence that that this worked in any way? I mean, was there any connection to the early um, understanding of the physical body and, and, and medicine like humoral theory? No, that doesn't come into play, but it's an interesting question whether or not it worked. In some cases, it did. Now, uh, Robert Boyle, a great figure of the scientific revolution, was troubled with nosebleeds and uh, he got some moss of a human skull from Ireland. Of course, he had wealthy family in Ireland. And um, he was going to put this up his nostrils, which was done by many people. It was a standard method. Now, of course, you know, you put pig's dung, mint, uh, chalk, uh, or moss of a human skull up your nostrils, various cures for nosebleeds. Tip your head back, it probably works because you're blocking your nostrils, etc. But Boyle actually decided to try gripping the moss only in his hand. Uh, He got a lot of nosebleeds at certain phases, and this worked. This worked. So this was probably psychological suggestion, but nonetheless, if it worked, who's to complain? Uh, The other versions of this, I uh, described this once to a uh, forensic pathologist I met in Durham, and he was an Egyptian whose mother uh, knew some traditional cures, when his uh, brother cut his head quite badly as a child, the mother put powdered coffee on the wound and it worked. And the pathologist explained to me that any powder stimulates the coagulation method uh, mechanism. So if you've got you know, powdered blood, which was used uh, against wounds, powdered mummy, of course, uh, powdered moss of the skull, etc., these are going to work and you're going to have your own ideas why. King's Trops, uh, you might say, worked in a rather interesting way. There was a character you may know of called Chiffinch, who was the kind of Martin Bormann, uh, the absolute right-hand man, uh, indispensable to Charles II. There's another comparison that springs to mind at the moment in um, modern politics, but it's just eluding me. Anyway, this uh, character Chiffinch, who was the indispensable advisor to the king, he would drug people's drinks with the king's drops to get them very drunk so that he could worm secrets out of them. And a character called Roger North, a lawyer who left his memoirs from Charles's time, uh, remembers it was the most drunk he ever was. He fell down behind a bush in Windsor Park. It was completely insensible. His brother was taking the piss out of him later and he couldn't remember what had happened. So, yeah, in the King's Drops, you had powdered skull, you had heart's horn, which is an ingredient in smelling salts. I don't know what was working, how, if you mixed it with alcohol was the problem. But, but yeah, this is North's memory. Um, so it was efficacious you could say broadly. So speaking of Charles II, a lot of your book is is spent within the 17th century. And as you say, it's really the early modern period that this trend took took root. Your narrative begins, it's, it's wonderfully done. It's really macabre and um, atmospheric. 
on the, in the murky streets of 17th century London. Considering there is such a vast history to this already, why did you choose to begin here? It was because I'm alienated a lot of the time by histories of the royals. I mean, it's incredible how even now, you know, you get serious historians just kind of specialising in one obscure member of the Victorian royal family, and we're supposed to care about this. So this is a real person who actually existed, who's based on real data and events at the time in that great freeze in London when the seas froze around Britain. And what I've also tried to do um, with the new edition is put in much more of what I call corpse magic, um, that, you know, for most of history, for most people, there was nothing but magic, um, particularly in the area of medicine, to give them some sense of power. It worked, it didn't work, it was madness, it was cruel, but it gave them a sense of power. Uh, I think this is this is vital to recognise. And, yeah, these things are stranger than fiction, some of them I unearthed. Um, and uh, it's about time we got much more of that, you know, fascinating real popular history uh, in print, I think. That's amazing. So he was actually the character that you opened the, the book with was a real was a real character and you mentioned No, he's based on real he, data, based on real data. Um, okay. from the period. I mean the fact that children would plunge their hands into horse dung because they were so yeah. cold. Yeah. Um, you know, I knew somebody who did that in a, in a farm not that long ago uh, on cold mornings with their feet at least. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, you got nature on your side. That was the trick. Get nature on your <laughs> side. Don't don't be disgusted. You can't afford to be disgusted. So how did the nobility in this period, kings in particular, adopt corpse medicine into their daily lives and their routine? Well, yeah, central figure in this was a character called Mayon. Uh, Theodore Turke de Mayon has been described as Europe's physician and wouldn't say the great and the good exactly, but certainly the powerful and the influential. Um, Henri IV, um, Charles I, Charles II, James I, Cromwell and many others were his patients. And um, interesting uh, case really was when Dunn was... Um, close to death potentially with typhus fever in 1623. And John Donne uh, was then the king's chaplain uh, preacher. And so James sent Mayon, his own physician, to Donne's sickbed, potentially deathbed. And um, devotions are kind of obscure now, the, the writings that Donne left from this period, but actually they're They've given us the most famous sayings from Dunn. So, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. No man is an island. These these two famous sayings from Dunn come from the devotions. And the thing that history has chosen to forget from the devotions is the fact that he mentions mummy. I think it's twice, um, but he mentions this. And it's hard not to wonder if Mayern, who was a great advocate of corpse medicine, uh, actually prescribed this for Dunn, who would have been suffering convulsions, um, and this was a, a medicine for that. Uh, we've got the easiest way to remember the great and the good, as it were, in the 17th century. James I refused corpse medicine, uh, in that he was unusual. Uh, Charles II made his own corpse medicine from human skull, and Charles I was made into corpse medicine. I love that analogy. It's so true. And I did a series on... Um... Charles I last year yeah. for Christmas and um, I remember sort of putting it together and a big part of that was actually the kind of relics that were attributed to him and that kind of really macabre aspects of people collecting blood on on bits of cloth or um, even you know it was it was even said that the um, people were selling the orange chunks of orange that were said to be in his mouth when he um, wow. was executed. But yeah. I never actually realised people ingested that blood. 
I don't know if they necessarily ingested it, but what's extraordinary is that, you know, you can see this painting by Weesop of them with the handkerchiefs and the blood. And um, it was parliamentarians who swore they cured the king's evil with these bloody handkerchiefs. Um, so it was, uh, you know, you take your medicine where you can get it. <laughs> so how were, I'm going into that sort of idea of the, of the Puritans, so following on from the death of Charles I, how were bodies collected? It was Around this time, it became quite an industry, wasn't it? Yes. So the Egyptians got more irritable or rigorous about smuggling of mummies. It began to be harder to get mummies from Egypt. Uh, There was a trade in counterfeit mummies. And they were making things out of dead camels, dead lepers, beggars, God knows what, in the back streets of Egypt. Absolutely disgusted by the fact that uh, the Europeans wanted this, but hey, you know, it's profit. And um, just the other day, I was reading about the guanche mummies. It long mystified the uh, archaeologists as to where these uh, settlers in the Canary Islands came from. How did they get their various theories? And they now, having analysed the mummies, think that they were Berbers from North Africa. So you have this irony of the Europeans running out of mummies uh, in various places in Egypt and then smuggling the, plundering the guanche mummies for medicine. Uh, And the fact that, you know, the Africans are being eaten for medicine by the civilised Europeans. They, of course, had a huge supply in uh, terms of felons, executed felons, mainly men, women weren't executed so much. And um, yeah, they, as we said, wanted the um, young corpse of a red-haired man dead uh, by strangling, which was often going to happen. But if they weren't uh, strangled, hung, they would, of course, be beheaded in much of Europe. And this has left us some of the most extraordinary scenes from uh, Austria through Germany up to Scandinavia, uh, Denmark and Sweden. We have repeated eyewitness accounts, including one from Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, of people drinking blood uh, at these these executions uh, right down to about 1865. Was drinking blood the only way of human consumption? Or, I mean, I know you've mentioned sort of snorting powdered skull but were there were there any sort of more cannibalistic rituals or even just normalized practices well the the vampirism was a kind of a cheap form of medicine i suppose for the masses and it was used against epilepsy how popular it was depended partly on how often an execution happened so in sweden where they're too civilized to have many executions you had huge crowds camped out the night before the executions just to get the blood and it's always struck me with these kind of accounts of you know savage blood rights in africa in the 19th century that there in sweden when the police plowed earth on to the blood as it poured from the body these people fell on their knees and piled into the dirt to cram the bloody earth into their mouths uh, it's hard to imagine a sort of more potent symbol of the hypocrisy of europeans and of course we're at a period now where we're thinking very hard about white supremacy so yeah this was your poor person's medicine but there was another form that wasn't cannibalistic, which was, again, an amazing one for the poor and went right on into the early 19th century in Britain and almost certainly elsewhere. And this was touching the corpse, touching the corpse. Uh, so while public hangings were still occurring in Britain uh, before 1868, you would have uh, you know, a big crowd around the hanging, but you would have one, two more people, often women, young women, who would actually stand themselves up somehow and touch the corpse and sort of quivering with the last 
impulses of life, you know, the hanged body, uh, to perhaps their breast. Any kind of uh, disfiguring goiter, whatever it might be, uh, the corpse was supposed to be able to cure it. And if somebody drowned by accident, uh, if somebody hung themselves as a suicide, etc., you quickly have people flocking, almost like flies, to these corpses to touch them. It is hard to stop them doing it. So, yeah, uh, magic again, but a very precise magic, I think, a lot of the time rooted in the belief that the corpse is only slightly dead for about three days and you can transfer your disease to it. And hey, you're not hurting anybody. They're, they're dead already. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so that's that's why it's almost so they believe people believe that you could relieve yourself of an ailment by giving it to an already dead person. So it wasn't anything to do with being able to find some kind of connection to the other life or the afterlife through a still physical being. There, there are different versions of this, really, of course, for the elite and for the ordinary people. And yes, the other life, I mean, this to me was the most extraordinary thing I learned, perhaps, in the whole book, was that they were trying to swallow the soul. And this was a period in which the soul was very much in the body. Done, for example, said, what happens if you lose an arm, a leg, a hand? Well, the soul that was in that gets sucked into the rest of your body. Very precise physiological force, a uh, quantity more than an entity in some ways, believed to be the hottest part of the blood quite quite exact that the kind of smoke of the blood smoke of the soul as i've called it in another book does everything in the body sight sexuality pain feeling etc etc it's all done by these spirits of the blood now when they wanted their young man dead of a violent death not of illness uh, they didn't want to lose his blood he should be hung he should be drowned now that was one thing but they also believed um character called nicasius lefebvre a big french chemist who Charles II learned from, um, believed that the fear and terror of being suffocated, hung, uh, etc., actually conditioned your spirits into the most 
potent form of all. So the body became its kind of own, own dark laboratory. Uh, and then you had the most efficacious uh, form of the soul trapped in the body, in the flesh, in the skull, depending on who you asked. And uh, yeah, you were, you were trying to swallow the forces of the soul. And this transferred into the Christian church, didn't it? Because you bring up a case in your book, particularly relating to vampirism, with um, the death of one of the one of the popes. I forget Innocent the Eighth, actually. Yes. yes, that was it. This is a good one. So, 1492. The story goes that he's on his deathbed. Three youths are bribed with a ducat apiece, and uh, they're bled. Their blood is given to the Pope to drink. Um, they all die. He dies. Amen. Now, this is given to us by a character called Stefano Infasura, lawyer, powerful critic of Innocent VIII. We know, of course, that the popes were capable of much worse than this. Alexander VI supposedly committed his first murder when he was 12. Uh, Sixtus um, connived in murders committed in the Duomo Cathedral in Florence in, I think, 1478. So in ethical terms, this was no problem for the popes. In practical terms and medical terms, it made sense. And Marsilio Ficino, one of the biggest um, intellectuals of the age, recommended several times that the elderly should rejuvenate themselves by drinking the blood of uh, a young man from their arm. Um, this would be attractive to somebody, as it now is to give plasma. It would probably be less painful than giving plasma, actually. Um, you were being bled routinely for superfluous blood. You'd be paid. Uh, you'd survive. And uh, yeah, this was this was on the uh, medical books and was allegedly pursued by the French aristocracy through the 18th century uh, in the most decadent period. They were supposed to have gone mad from doing it. So uh, yeah, you'd um, you'd got a good history of um, rich vampires uh, through this age. So it's interesting. It's like blood is a life is a life force. It's it's almost like a it's almost sort of um, folklore in a way, isn't it? This idea of drinking the blood to keep you young and i i guess that's where the idea in tales of vampires comes from so when the vampire consumes blood that he she becomes more youthful do you think that that's the case that's that's more or less it except that the kind of the two things meet in the middle i think you use the phrase life force there and a lot of the time people who are scared to death of vampires greeks in 19th century america for example uh greece had a very strong vampire tradition they say oh i never heard of a vampire drinking blood they kill people that's what they do um so they're dangerous but they they, they consume your life force they don't need to drink blood to do it in lots of ways the the idea of the vampire drinking blood and i talk about this in the real vampires it, it tells us more about ourselves why do we like the idea of vampires drinking blood it comes around really only from the 18th century and from certain quarters but yeah in both cases um corpse medicine vampires the idea is that you are consuming the force of life and you can do it in various ways i think drinking hot blood at a scaffold apart from the fact that it was licensed the executioner handed out cups you paid a small amount it seemed to have an effect i mean you ask about things working now i asked my good friend steve schlossman at harvard who never tires of these disgusting medical questions what's going to happen if you drink blood he said, well you know you drink enough of it you drink too much you get iron toxicity and you get convulsions you get confusion and potentially you can die and the convulsions and confusion match 
descriptions of what happened to people when they drank blood at a scaffold. Uh, they were also advised to run as fast as they could. As you'll know, nobody run if they could help it in these days. And um, you, you did it to burn off the superfluous energy. You, know, you did it to stop yourself going crazy and, and getting convulsions. So, uh, yeah, it looked like it was having... Because a... the physical response would be that of almost like an extreme caffeine hit. Is that... Uh, that, that that's possibly quite a good way of putting it. And of course, you didn't have coffee for most people in those periods. So it would be it would be a big, a big deal. And it would it would look like it was doing something important. You know, magic isn't a simple thing. It would it would look like it was it was working to many people. OK, so evidently something changed because now when we're talking about it, I'm going, oh, my God, that is completely bizarre. That's so weird and really macabre and quite unsettling. What happened? in that sort of space of 300 years, when this was the social norm for it to become something that was considered to be massively like a stigma, essentially? Yeah, that's a big question. And of course, it didn't happen quickly to ordinary people who were still doing this in the early 20th century, in some cases, drinking from skulls and so forth. But yeah, for uh, the educated, the elite, the influential, uh, it started to turn about 1750. And there's an interesting kind of trio of characters involved in turning the tide. One was Dr. Johnson. Of course, his famous dictionary comes out in mid-18th century. And he um, he doesn't have an entry for sausage, notoriously, but he does have an entry for mummy, and he doesn't like it. Uh, he cites a character called Dr. Hill, who derides um, filthy, disgusting, useless, disreputable medicines from skull, from the moss of the skull. And uh, he also has a character called Robert James, uh, who's a medical doctor, friend of Johnson's. Now, James was actually a pretty disreputable character. He was constantly drunk, but he made a great lot of money out of his fever potion and out of private practice. And he was concerned increasingly, as were others, about the medical profession. We take this for granted. It seems to have been you know, around since Hippocrates. But no, the medical profession was hammered into shape uh, roughly in the 18th, early 19th centuries. And until that time and through much of that time, people thought that doctors were cruel, greedy, uh, untrustworthy. And this was mirrored on the stage. Uh, There's a wonderful comedy called Three Hours from Marriage uh, in which you have uh, a mummy appearing on the stage. Uh, And shortly after that, 1730s, I think, you get a great romp um, in the form of Moliere's The Hypochondriac. And in this you have a doctor mummy. And this doctor mummy is obviously a disreputable, laughable black comedy character who's implying to people that mummy is giving the physicians a bad image. So one big thing here is public image being cleaned up. We've got um, James, who's keen to make money and sensitive to uh, public disgust. We've got Johnson, who just doesn't seem to like this. Uh, and we've got Dr. Hill, who's actually a travelling actor at times, so we'll be very much aware of what's going on on the stage. So this little London-based trio have quite a big influence. Uh, this is the medical profession. Connected to that is a sense that female patients in particular, but patients in general, are getting much more easily disgusted. Um, my latest book is A History of Disgust, and disgust really seems to get going with the middle, to some extent the upper classes, around the middle of the 18th century. And you define yourself socially as genteel by all the new dirty things that you push away from you. Uh, Then we've got in kind of cahoots with this, the rise of enlightenment rationality, very strong sense of new identity, the modern 
and the past becomes dirty, disreputable, superstitious. Uh, in the Enlightenment, they try to say that corpse medicine was a thing of the Middle Ages. So that's already happening. This was certainly not the case. It was still going on when they're deriding it. The other thing that happens uh, connects to what we said about the soul. So that anatomists have been searching for the human soul pretty much through 200 uh, odd years or more. And they finally give up. They cannot find evidence. They cannot find much difference between animal and human corpses and brains in particular. And so they decide that the kind of forces of the soul, the physiology of the soul, no longer operates in the same way. And as they mechanize the body and take out of this kind of fiery steam of the soul, they decide in a nutshell that the body isn't worth eating anymore. And that's partly why they stop. It's interesting that they begin to associate it with the unclean when actually the irony is the blood's incredibly clean yes i'm told that you have to filter it um sanguinarians have it filtered i gather but but yeah a lot of things they were using were clean i mean if you were wounded um out in the field a surgeon comes up to you and uh the first top quality treatment you'll get will be them to piss all over you uh because the uh, urine is sterile when it leaves the body the water they've got to hand is almost certainly not and uh this was a this was a standard practice to treat wounds yeah well, still is with jellyfish stings. <laughs> okay, I haven't heard that one. That's a new one. So we look at that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's that's so fascinating. I, you know, foolish of me, but I would always associate corpse medicine or cannibalism in in this respect with, you know, the ancient civilizations, um, as it is most commonly associated with when people mention the word cannibalism so that's been really enlightening going forward i mean how would you hope to change the way people look at vampirism and cannibalism in um in the west well yeah it's a big question i think what you've just said actually is instructive the idea that we're still all of us and i think myself as well you know still sold this myth of progress is a very powerful kind of sense of Protestant sometimes teleology particularly uh, that the world is getting better you know struggle for it but it gets better it's not getting better when you know staggering numbers of children in our country the sixth richest in the world perhaps go hungry uh, ordinarily uh, and depend on school meals uh, it's not getting better when you know I'm paraphrasing here but what is it something like 26 people in the world are as rich as half the population of the world it's not getting better when these events are happening in uh, America and when you know our world leaders are, are disgusting are dangerous are racist but they're also embarrassing in a way that we haven't really seen uh, for quite some time I mean Ronald Reagan wasn't this embarrassing so yeah in this kind of whole picture of you know growing and appalling inequality we have what Rose George has touched on recently in her book Nine Pints Plassing. There is now a verb to plass. You give your plasma and predictably enough, the rules in America for this are much slacker than they are in Europe. And you can do this so regularly that you're likely to suffer extreme fatigue. Your legs turn to jelly. Uh, you black out for, for hours at a time. You, you sell your life force to eat. Um, so, yeah, uh, let's uh, let's not delude ourselves too much about progress. Let's hope we're going to get some, but let's not uh, assume it's there where it isn't. Yeah, and also just understand that this was a practice that was that was very that was commonplace um, in in the West in our country in, in in cities and and you know all around all around all around the country. So it's not something that was um, just specific to 
um, indigenous cultures elsewhere? No, absolutely not. I mean, it was what I call a kind of ordinary madness. You know, we all have our ordinary madnesses of one culture, age, place, and uh, there tends to be a kind of blindness to them. I mean, look at traffic emissions. You know, this is a kind of ordinary madness, which you've had an escape from recently for accidental reasons. And yeah, the uh, this was an ordinary madness. It was normal. It was prestigious. It was uh, scientific. It was industrial. It was systematic. And you ended up with a situation where, in an age of also great inequality, perhaps the most intimate relation between the rich and the poor, other than sometimes sex, was for the poor to be inside the rich uh, in the form of medicine. That's such an uncanny thought. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, all of that with me. Um, Richard, what's the full title of your book and where can people where can people find it? Yeah, it's it's up on Amazon for pre-order. It should be available on Kindle tomorrow. The paperback is a little bit more of a fussy process. I'm working on that. But full title is, thank you, um, Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Middle Ages to the Falun Gong. And it brings us right up to tragic events in the 21st century in, uh, in the case of the Falun Gong in China. Great. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for a really great, really enjoyable conversation and really interesting questions. Thanks. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.